All right, would y'all pray with me? Father God, we find ourselves in one of the great seasons of the Christian life where we get to um, direct our thoughts towards the greatest act of deliverance that the world has ever known, that an innocent man, the only one who's ever been, gladly, willingly took our sin upon his shoulders and was crucified for our sin, risen from the dead and ascended. Lord, this is the season where um, you have directed your church to pause things and to direct our attention and our affection to the passion of our Savior. And so we pray as we, uh, as we think through this psalm, Psalm 22, uh, God, we pray that you would grant that we would see and savor and enjoy Christ Lord, we need, uh, we need a new and a, um, a helpful word so that we can see Christ for who he is and love him even more than we do at this moment. And we, uh, we pray that you would do that through your spirit and through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are going to spend time thinking about Psalm 22. So let me read you a quote from a great theologian about the Psalms. He says, if we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. The Psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. He prayed the Psalter, and now it has become his prayer for all time. We understand how the Psalter can be prayer to God and yet God's own word precisely because here we encounter the praying Christ. Those who pray the Psalms are joining in with the prayer of Jesus Christ and Christ has become their intercessor. Um, This is uh, from Diedrich Bonhoeffer and he talks about rightly how in the Psalms, this one in particular is a Psalm of David, And you'll be reading and you can say, okay, that relates to certain parts of David's life. But sometimes they spill over and they prophesy, as it were, in the spirit of Christ. And um, and we are intended to read those psalms as the prayers of Christ. And this one in particular is very helpful because scripture is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. And he saves those sinners by reconciling the whole world to himself by bearing the guilt and condemnation and dereliction and shame of the world upon the cross. So our psalm this morning ought to be one of the most familiar and prayed and memorized treasures in the scripture. It ought to be that for all of us because when our Christ was in his broken body and when his blood was being poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. When the nails were in process of holding him aloft in the type of pain that literally gives us our word excruciate. When all who hated him were surrounding him on every side in gloating exultation. When only a few women who had loved him and to my knowledge one of the twelve were still by his side. To see his humiliation and to see what they thought was his ultimate defeat. Psalm 22 was on his lips. Just pause for a moment. 
Like what's on your mouth at deathbed. Christ is just about to die. And he is in in the act of bearing our sin, our guilt, our shame. Jesus, what are you thinking of in that moment? Psalm 22. It's marvelous. And so it's a, it's a good psalm for us to be meditating on in, um, in the, the season where we think about the passion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So there's three big ideas I want to press on this morning from Psalm 22. The first is that when Christ was dying on the cross, he was meditating on both the word and the works of God. So when he's dying, when he's at his lowest point, he is meditating on the word and the works of God. One, one of the um, guys I was listening to speak about Psalm 22 said that there is church tradition that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he, he quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they said that he began there. And there, there's a lot of people who believe that he quoted Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, Psalm 25, Psalm 26, all the way up to Psalm 31, verse 4. When he said his last words in life, into your hand, I commit my spirit. It's marvelous. I don't know if that's true or not, but we do know that when Christ was on the cross, Psalm 22 is on his mind. So let's look at the types of things that Jesus, when he's quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's not just um, cherry picking from the Old Testament. It's a context that he wants us to be mindful of. And so let's read verses one through eight together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Again, a, a really helpful man said, this is not a question that has no answer. Why have I been forsaken? Answer, because you have endeavored to bear the sin of your people on the cross. And so you're suffering under as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of wrath. This is your guilt, my guilt, your shame, my shame. That is why he is forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. And yet, in verse three, yet you are kadosh, you are holy. This is the word that the seraphim, uh, when, when Isaiah sees his vision of God in the temple, kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. Jesus on the cross, experiencing dereliction and shame and guilt, suffering. There's, there's all of these things that he's experiencing, and yet he remembers that God is a holy God. He's not like anyone else. You can't compare this God to anyone He is absolutely holy. And isn't this an ironic statement? You are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. What is Israel doing when Christ is on the cross? Are they praising God? No, they're blaspheming God. They're in the presence of God saying things like, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, when you read Matthew's account of the crucifixion, it goes right down the line of Psalm 22. Everything that, that uh, all, the, the details that Matthew shares, just homework this week, the details that Matthew shares are, are these details. And so Christ remembers, you are holy, 
And you dwell in the praises of Israel. But at that moment when he was in, on the cross, Israel was not praising God. They were mocking God. Jesus reminds himself, in you, O God, our fathers trusted. You ever do this? Like when you're at a low point and you just, you, you have to go back to the stories of redemption and to think about what about the, the ancients? Well, Christ, Jesus is reminded, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. If you write in your Bible, circle the word shame. Those people trusted you and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. Matthew says the Pharisees shook their heads at him and they mocked him. They wagged their heads. And then they throw this on him in his moment of forsakenness. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him. For he delights in him. You saved others. Save yourself. Come down off the cross. You claim to be the king of Israel. Come down and we'll believe you, they said to him. Isn't it a wonder that when Christ was bleeding out for the purification of our sin, he brought to mind the faithfulness of God toward all the redeemed of history. He brought to mind the likes of childless Abraham, of persecuted Jacob, of betrayed Joseph, of Moses and Israel hemmed in by the sea and the mountains and Pharaoh's army, David hunted into the caves of En Gedi, Hezekiah held like a bird in a cage by Sennacherib the Assyrian. And what a joy it is to remember that each of these men, each of these men were delivered in due time. How did Christ endure the suffering on the cross? He remembered the faithfulness of God and the holiness of God, the trust of the fathers and the deliverance of all of the redeemed of all, of, uh, of all time. Now, perhaps we should ask just right here, how should we then imitate Christ in our suffering? Well, we should be mindful that God does his greatest work when our circumstances are at their lowest and most hopeless and most impossible. God is a God who loves to lead us where we would not go. And let us lose all of our hope of self-reliance only to, deliver, only to deliver us at the proper time. Remember the Lord, our shepherd, uh, who makes us, um, leads us beside the still waters. He also leads us to the valley of the shadow of death so that he can show up when we cry out to him. Does anyone feel like God has forsaken them? Be of good cheer. Our God is our light in the darkness. He is omnipotent strength and we are weak. He is life from the literal dead. Once again, how did Christ endure the suffering on the cross? He remembered the faithfulness of God, the trust of the fathers, and the deliverance of all the redeemed. What a gift. But listen, there's a problem here. Do you see it? This problem leads me to the second idea that I want to press home from Psalm 22. When Jesus remembered the suffering of the fathers and the holiness of God to deliver them in due time, he also had to admit that none of them, and I mean none of them, experienced even a tenth of the suffering that he did in his life. Look in verse six. Let's read six through eight again. But I, so they trusted you and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, 
despised by the people. David knew what it was to say, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. And here Jesus is having shame heaped upon him, a worm and not a man. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. We need to keep in mind that while these are the words of David, the New Testament teaches us to understand them as the spirit of Christ testifying through David about the sufferings that David had never endured. You can see 1 Peter chapter 1 for these things. But this is suffering that David has never endured. David may have resonated with these words like someone who's lost a pinky finger in a lawn mowing accident might resonate with a soldier who has lost their face and legs and arms to a landmine. There can be, res- I know what it is to lose something, but nothing like that. David never got this low. Anytime there's a lull in sports action, all of the talking heads begin to kick around the idea of the goat, right? The greatest of all time. LeBron or Jordan, Brady or Mahomes, Messi or Maradona. But this psalm, we see the voice of Christ who is the universe's goat. Jesus is the greatest of all time. We see him express the fact that on the cross, he had become the universe's lot, the lowest of all time. Nobody has ever experienced this. God has always been a God who loves to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, but never were there worse circumstances for God's hero than the cross upon which Jesus died and the tomb into which Jesus was laid. That is game over. That is fat lady singing. That is, Satan has won, all hope is lost. Okay? The, the, the cross, the tomb, is the lowest circumstance from which God snatched victory. And he did snatch victory, rest assured. Um, listen to Jesus' last gasp of hope before the end comes. Let's read verses 9 uh, through 21a, and we're going to stop right there. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust at my mother's breast. There's the sovereignty of God over um, our salvation. You made me trust at my mother's breast. There's also the inclusion of the covenant children. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Wow. Before you came out of the womb, you were God to me. Be not far from me for trouble is near And there's none to help. Have you ever prayed that prayer to God? I need you to be much closer than you feel because my trouble is near. He says, many bulls. Watch this. This is fascinating. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, is the second Adam. He's the new and better Adam. So when Adam was made, placed in the garden, all things were placed under his feet. Psalm 8, uh, sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea were placed under the foot of man, but Adam gave that away in his rebellion. And so what you're seeing here is the new and better Adam who's come to win back what God gave to Adam, what Adam, through his disobedience, gave to Satan. This new and better Adam is coming to steal back. But in order to do that, you're gonna see decreation language right here. You're gonna see all creation in rebellion against what should be their rightful Lord. Many bulls, if you write in your Bible, just circle all the animals. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring a lion. I am poured out like water. 
All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Heart, the seed of courage and spiritedness where we will take on enemies and overturn tables and we'll call out wickedness. And his heart is like wax melted. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Who crucified Christ? The answer is everybody. Who's ultimately responsible? Um, God, who allowed it to be to happen so that we could be forgiven. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs. There's another animal. Encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. David, what are you talking about here? What, what, are, you, what are you saying, King David? Where, where were your hands and your feet pierced? When could you have counted all, your, all of your bones? When have you been surrounded by people who stare at you and gloat over you? We got him. We got him. When did you have your garments uh, divided among them and cast lots for your outer clothes, which means Jesus is stripped. It's like Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, stripped of his glory and his honor. But here Jesus is stripped and he's lifted up so that all could see his shame. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Beloved, have you ever heard a no from heaven? Have you ever cried out in a, this cannot wait until tomorrow, urgency, pleading with God to deliver and heard silence in return. Well, this text shows us that when Christ was at the very lowest, lower than any man who's ever been, under the wrath of the Father, delivered up to the principalities and powers, despised and rejected by men, believed to be a blasphemer and an insurrectionist, deserted by all of his friends, laid naked and ashamed before the eyes of the whole world. What could he do but ask for heaven's help? And when he did... He was told, no. If possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And Christ was made to drink this bitter cup to the last drop. Truly, if the story had ended there, then with Paul, we must confess that we are of all men most to be pitied. But this leads to the last and greatest idea that the psalm drives home for us, that while Jesus was brought lower than any man in history, It was through this very suffering that he was exalted above every name and given the name above all names, a name at which every knee must and shall bow, a name at which every tongue must and shall confess that Jesus Christ has indeed become Lord of both heaven and earth. So what happens when the greatest man is laid lower than anyone ever and cries out for deliverance? Heaven says, no, endure it. And he trusted and he gave up his spirit. What then happens? What happens between verses 21 and 22? Answer is Easter Sunday. It's resurrection from the dead. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Just listen to the ramifications of what happened 
um, of what the sufferings of Christ have brought about because of the resurrection, because of his suffering, because of the resurrection, we started with, right? If you, if you write in your Bible, uh, turn back to verse one and just write start. And then above verses 22, write end. Where does it start? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does it end? This is how it ends in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. How? When you're dead. We thought this one was the Christ, the disciples say, but he was crucified. So it can't be him. And yet here he is testifying. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus came to reveal the father to his brothers, to you and to me. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Answer this, Christian. How is there a congregation of redeemed? Like the suffering of Christ is what created the church, created the the congregation of the redeemed. And Jesus says, not only will I make them by my suffering, but I will go into their midst and I will praise you, the father. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, which does include you by faith. We have become the, the, the seed or the children of Abraham. So this is us, you and me, who know the crucifixion and res, uh, the crucified and resurrected Christ. He says, all you who fear the Lord, you praise him. You glorify him. You stand in awe of him for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Death, the death of Christ did not mean that Christ was not heard and it did not mean that the father did not answer him. But it was necessary that he would die and be risen from the dead. From you comes, watch this in verse 25, comes my praise in the great congregation. This Christ will be praised in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And may your hearts live forever. Listen to verse 27. This death did something Amazing, something cosmic. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Uh, If you write in your Bible, circle the word all. It's a great, um, how many of you guys are familiar with Ron Swanson? Is that name familiar to anybody? It's the greatest mustached man in uh, in sitcom history. Uh, There's a a moment where he goes into a cafe and he's been on some sort of a weird diet. I can't remember the context, but... (laughs) <laughs> the waiter comes, it's like a fry cook. He comes and he says, bring me all of the bacon that you have. And the guy says, okay. And he turns around to leave and he goes, wait, 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 come back. I'm afraid that what you heard me say was bring me a lot of bacon. So I'm going to say it again. Bring me all the bacon that you have, right? I'm afraid. So wait, wait, come back to me. I'm afraid that what you might have heard the psalmist say is, a lot of the ends of the earth will praise him. But that's not what the text says. All the ends of the earth shall remember. Everybody will be mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ 
took our sin upon himself and gave himself as a ransom for all. Everyone will know this. Everyone. God be praised. All the ends of the earth shall remember and they shall turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. God told Abraham at the very beginning, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that comes through in Christ, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For, in verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All authority, not a lot of authority, but all in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This death and this resurrection did not save people out of the world, but it saved the world itself. Colossians says that he has reconciled all things, things in heaven, things on earth, to himself through the blood of his cross. There's two ways to reconcile. Reconcile just means to bring peace. You can be reconciled through conversion or you can be reconciled through conquer, but everything has been reconciled to Christ. Verse 29, circle the word all. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow, circle, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, this is glorious. Do you ever want to, um, there, there is a, uh, there's a story, a, a famous story in history where Alexander the Great is coming over and he's going to conquer Israel. He's kind of sweeping through. And Israel, through the prophesying of Daniel and, and I believe Jeremiah as well, they knew that a conqueror was going to come from Greece. And so when, uh, when Alexander the Great is on the way, the priests get out their garments, they get out all of their stuff and they open the gates and they come out and they show Alexander the Great prophecy about him. We knew you were coming, and so the city is yours, and they didn't fight. And he was so moved by that, he left them alone, right? It would be, think about how marvelous it would be to read yourself into the scripture. I've got great news. You are verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. How many of you were alive when Christ was risen from the dead? They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You are the people as yet unborn. You are part of all the ends of the earth shall remember. Just, just remember where this message was first proclaimed and how far it has come to get to you here in Fayette County, Texas. It's a marvelous, marvelous truth. Beloved. Oh, never mind. That's, uh, I'm in the wrong pot. Okay, Christ has indeed done it. Last verse. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Christ has indeed done it. He has overcome. He was crucified but he is risen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. No nation can stand against the one whose name is faithful and true. For from his mouth comes the sword that slays his enemies or sanctifies them. It is a healing and a wrecking word that this sovereign king speaks to the nations because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
We can be assured that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, has been thrown down. He lives and he fights, but he is a defeated foe whose gates cannot stand against the church that King Jesus is building so long as the church will march. Christ has asked the Father and he has given the nations to him as his inheritance and he is ruling them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What else do you think is happening to our country that has denied its only Lord and King? This Jesus who was crucified has been risen from the dead and all can know this for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom we crucified. Behold, beloved, The irony of Easter Sunday, he who was made the lowest is now the extreme highest. May God be praised. May Christ be exalted. May every rebel mouth be stopped and may every lowly heart take courage. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So this table is a table of glad fellowship, not a table of renewed shame. Can you hear me say that again? This table is a table of glad fellowship, not a table of renewed shame. It takes courage to come rightly to this table. And the courage that it takes must be rooted in faith or it cannot be what it must be. Jesus Christ has answered for your sin. That's the point of his being a worm and not a man. Suffering under the slander with pierced hands and feet and back laid bare. All of that nakedness, all of that shame should have fallen on you and on me. But he loved and he was merciful and therefore he bore your shame in his body so that you do not have to bear your shame. That's the point. You get to believe this and listen to me. You must believe this. You must believe this. You get to believe it. You must believe it. You confessed your sins. He's forgiven your sins on the merit of his perfect life and death for sin. You have been cleansed. So don't come to the table getting sad about your sin, for that would be unfitting. It would just be the wrong thing to do. Boast gladly that all of your sin has been laid upon Christ and come to the table. Hear Martin Luther, quote, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, Tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Christ has conquered so that you and I could be with him, raised with him, seated with him, the right hand, the majesty on high. And how are we to be with him? In what manner are we, are we to be with him? Holy blameless, without spot or wrinkle or stain, all because he was able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with what? Can you finish it? With great joy. He has done it. On the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, he cried, it is finished. This morning, He leaves his victory on the table for us to enjoy. So come with your sins forgiven and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, there is joy unfathomable when our eyes are fixed upon Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross.
despising its shame. He has been risen. He is seated at your right hand. And we, his bride and his body, get caught up through your agency to, to sit with him on his heavenly throne while yet reigning here on earth. This table is victory because this table is deliverance from all guilt. This table is deliverance from all shame, from all fear. Because this table is his body broken for us. This table is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you impart to us the courage that must come from belief in these things, the gladness that must come if we believe these things. You know where we've been, you know where we will be, and you have loved us even still, you have cleansed us even still. We are clean as we are in Christ, and so let us come together with gladness. Would you enable us to do it now? In Christ's name we ask it, amen.